0: only from rustolium
2: Today's episode is brought to you in association with Perkbox. Anyone who's come within an inch of Perkbox knows they take employee happiness very seriously. That's why they're organising the first ever Perkbox Workplace Culture Awards, a nationwide competition celebrating the businesses that go over and above to make people happy. It doesn't matter if you're a startup with a headcount of 10 or an established industry titan. As long as your business believes in putting people first, you could be in with a chance of winning a fabulous team party, courtesy of Perkbox. Go to awards.perkbox.com to nominate your company or another company of your choice. Nominations close on the 31st of October. The winners will be chosen by a public vote through November. Happy nominating. Hello, this is Bruce Daisley. This is Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat. Has work been intense for you recently? Work has been deeply intense for me. And I've struggled to get new episodes done on the weekends because I've felt so spent. September, October is always hectic and it's really done me in. So I'm human. Sue me. Now, I have got about 10 episodes recorded, but my plan is to do something interesting with them. And it's such a colossal job, I've sort of been putting it off alongside work being hectic i've had a lot of work travel and then i did this tedx talk in newcastle and i thought when i was planning it i thought should i do something brand new or should i do something familiar you know these i've been doing presentations for my book and there's probably the greatest hits of that i thought would be very easy and i thought i'm gonna try something brand new but i'll be honest with you while I was doing it, I kind of lost my way early on because I'd been so busy, busy, I didn't rehearse anywhere near as much as I should. I stalled it out. I think you might not notice how bad it was as strongly as I did. I came off stage thinking, it's fine, I'll just never return to Newcastle ever again. Anyway, there were some lovely tweets about it and I sold 50 copies of The Joy of Work at the Waterstone stand. So I suspect it probably wasn't quite the one out of 10 that I feared it was, but it was probably a passable three out of 10. And look, by the way, when I last looked, which was about three weeks ago, my book, The Joy of Work, was the second best-selling business hardback of the year. It was about six copies behind the number one book. So if you're planning to buy The Joy of Work, this could be your way to edge me to the top. No pressure, but it'll be your fault if I don't do it. Now, my month has been captivated by Johan Hari's book, Lost Connections. It's not brand new, but I stumbled upon it because I watched his new TED Talk, which is just, along with the book, is just wonderful and game-changing. It's nominally about depression, but actually, it's really, it's about modern life. My sister's just finished a master's in psychology, and she told me that everything he discusses is familiar, but... I'd never seen it drawn together so holistically. Basically, he talks about if we replace the word depressed with disconnected, it might invite a different set of solutions. If you want to try before you buy, like I say, the TED talk is beautiful. And it's his second TED talk about depression, not the first one about addiction. I've linked to it in the notes. If you sort of tap the bottom of your your podcast app through both of them, he definitely appears to have rehearsed significantly more than me. Anyway, Johan told me in the summer that he was going to come on here. So make sure you tweet tagging him and me saying how much you'd love to hear him on the Eat Sleep Work Repeat. What's stopping you from doing your best work ever? That's the question that workplace culture expert Aaron Dignan asks in workplaces he visits. Aaron has written a new book called Brave New Work, which is a practical guide to reinventing work culture and redesigning our jobs. He sort of takes you step by step through the actions you need to take. He came in to see me armed with lots of the little props, in this case, little playing cards that he uses during his interventions. I'm in quite a bombastic mood during the interview, as you'll quickly hear, which is, I'll be candid with you, it's it's a lot closer to the real me. I normally do quite a good job of making myself seem more thoughtful half the time here. You might find this real me a bit much. I know I did during the edit. You should ask people who sit near me. It's exhausting. Aaron's advice is very practical. If you want to deal with too many meetings, he explains an approach you should take. And because he's so experienced in running these workshops, it makes it for a really fascinating practical chat. Here's my discussion with author of Brave New Work, Aaron Dignan. I admit I've only read half of the book, but the bit (laughs) I've read... Sort of tingled my brain a lot. Let's take a step back. So you've written this book, brave, brave new work. Let's take a step back for why you wrote it. Sure. Because it, it sounds, firstly, like um, how you wrote it sounds proof of what you're talking about. But why you wrote it, I think, is an interesting yeah. journey. Yeah.
3: Well, I think, I mean, it's. Uh, it's very needed Uh, I think we're trying to accelerate this transition so the book kind of takes the premise that the way we work um, is outdated uh, and isn't serving us very well that it was kind of invented on a factory floor 100 plus years ago and We live in a very different world today, with different expectations and different challenges. So we need to change that. It scales well to sort of, you know, to take a thesis that you can have people dwell in a bit, take them, tell them a story about where work came from and where it's going, and how, you know, what we're seeing on the front lines of some of this change work. Um, It seemed like a really nice way to reach a lot of people, and my hope, I guess, was that it would accelerate the transition from very bureaucratic ways of working to, to alternatives.
2: Right. So this is one of the first things to scribble down yes. that you you effectively said modern work is bureaucratic, right? One hundred percent. We've created what are the stats you give for the amount of meetings we have a week? You, you give different stats than I've got. So, oh,
3: yeah, yeah. I mean, we're talking about, you know, somewhere between 10 and 30 hours a week, depending on the industry. Um, well, well into half our week, I would say, for most people in corporate work.
2: And so th- I think the secret of a good book is that it makes you think that you've come across a good idea. And so I scribbled down, um, which is uh, completely stolen from you. But if the challenge of modern work is we need to be heading towards creativity, we need to be sort of furnishing our inventive selves. Sure. And our solution that we've come, a- come across to try and do that is... bureaucracy solving a creative need with bureaucracy seems like it might be a system failure totally it's a
3: system failure and i think that's one of the reasons that most change management even change management that has nothing to do with new ways of working fails is that we are trying to fix the organization like it's a watch and in fact it's a complex system it's a human system with all this richness and uncertainty
2: And so your big thing is we need to change the operating system of companies. And it seems like you're saying every company needs its correct operating system. There's not one size fits all, right?
3: No, I think that at a principles level, we're going to see broader agreement that things like autonomy and transparency and purpose and trust and those sorts of things are probably resonant across most people in most cultures. But then the manifestation of that into a meeting practice, a decision practice, a way of sharing, a way of being... That's going to be that'll be locally customized, right. just the way good food can be of many different cultures. But you know it when you taste it. And
2: is this a book that you've basically run as exercises with teams? Because it felt very practical. It felt like we're going into the meeting section, and here are the stimulus that you might yeah. you might run as exercises with your team. The, I mean, the book is the
3: output of a lot of trial and error. <laughs> so we've spent uh, you know the better all of the Ready's history almost four years, and then the better part of several years uh, uh, before that doing this work with teams, sometimes to great success, sometimes to you know, quite frustrating failure.
2: Go on, talk us and, through both examples. So, yeah, so when's it gone well? So when it when it typically goes
3: well, I mean one example is we worked with a with a factory, a manufacturing facility where we could kind of put a ring around it and say, all right, this five hundred people is gonna work differently and they want to and they kind of oh, show he, up. Oh here to we them. go. Go on. So tell
2: us that. What were they ma- yeah.
3: what were they making? Uh, so they worked in pharmaceutical okay. um, space and some some that were, you know, kind of regulated and some that were more over the counter uh, products. And the The sense when we got there was one of uh, kind of lack of engagement. There'd been a lot of layoffs. There was a lot of downward pressure. And so the team was eager for agility and for some humanity back in the work. And this was
2: factory workers? Actual people making the the files? Oh yeah. No,
3: our our direct client was the leadership team uh, that was on site. Right.
2: So Uh, they said to you, Help us make what I guess reduce burnout, stop people feeling. Yeah, do, do people up, feel burnout in And factories? up to
3: productivity? Oh yeah. Do they? <laughs> yeah. I mean, imagine you know, a lot of the work is highly repetitive. A lot of the work right. is highly constrained, and there's a lot of scrutiny. There's, right. a, I mean, you know, that a lot of the ways of working that I'm sort of arguing against in the book came from the factory floor setting. Yeah, right? because
2: because you d- give these um, this, uh diagnosis Actually, which is good to take a step back at it. Which is the the type the system uh, system X and system. Y. Is that right? Uh, theory X, Theory, theory Y. Theory X, yeah. Theory Y. So Theory X gave us is what? Yeah, so this is
3: Douglas McGregor's work from the 60s. So essentially, if you ask people about their, the nature of human beings and work, there were sort of two schools of thought. Theory X is that people generally can't be trusted and they generally need to be motivated with carrots and sticks and they generally want to avoid responsibility and learning. And they, they're sort of, you know, people are lazy, effectively, and that we need to kind of treat them as such. Um, and theory Y, the alternative is that people are motivated by, you know, autonomy and learning and want to seek some responsibility and can be creative if the conditions are right. Um, and that kind of, you know, that people are generally worthy of, of trust and respect. Um, and his take was, his argument was, and there's been quite a few data points to support this that when you ask people about themselves, they will say, oh, well, I'm very much theory Y. You know, right. I, I, I want to do important work in my life and I want to grow and I want to take risks and I'm, you know, I'm someone that identifies with those values. But then when you ask them about the people at their local grocery or their colleagues down the hall that are in a different division or whatever, then those people are more theory X, right? And it, right. it's almost the Lake Wobegon effect of like everyone's above average. It's just not possible that each of of us thinks we're Y, but everyone else is actually. So
2: back to your factory. Yeah. That, you know, despite everything, I suspect a degree of theory X was meaning that they felt Burnt out under pressure, scrutiny. Totally, yeah. So, the sense to, to, was to just, what was the what, what were the stages of reaching a diagnosis, and then what intervention did you make? Yeah. Well, one thing that's interesting is
3: we we try not to do a lot of diagnosis to anyone. Because okay. We find that um, you know, in complexity, the people living the experience know are closer to the truth than we are. Right. And I find averages very dangerous. But this so. is your
2: company. When you say we, it's your company, yeah, the, the Ready. Ready.
3: So we do this work that sort of supports the the Brave New Workbook. Um, And so, you know, I think it's dangerous to play in averages, and it's very common for groups like mine to come in and assess and then make a report that says your number one problem is lack of trust. But I always joke that, you know, if uh, Bezos walks into a bar, then the average net worth in the bar is $100 but that's not what's really going on. Mm. So I don't like those averages or those assessments. So instead, we really just go to teams, and we start with the question of what's stopping you from doing the best work of your life, which is a heady question. But the funny thing is every team I've ever met has an answer. You know, it's we have meetings to prepare for meetings, or we're not trusted, or we don't have the information we need, or, you know, and, 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 and. And then we just start right there. We start with what's present and alive for the team. So some of the teams there were interested in faster ways to make decisions. Some of the teams there were interested in fewer meetings. Some of the teams were interested in what might make things feel more um, engaged or make employees feel safer in their, in their jobs going forward. I mean, there were a lot of different
2: thoughts. And what are normally the barriers then? Is it bureaucracy? If, if it is bureaucracy, if we yeah. diagnose that the the system, <laughs> the, the sim- systematic problem is bureaucracy, yeah. how do you start eliminating bureaucracy? So, so let's let's go back to the factory. Yeah. So the factory people said we want to do our best work, they gave you some, some ideas. Can you mm-hmm. remember what specifics they were in, in the factory? Yeah, I think that
3: one was uh, was often a lot about um, agility, about making decisions quickly, about okay. who had the right to make decisions. So right. a lot of confusion, and when there's confusion in bureaucracy, we look up. Yeah. So if we don't know who has the right to do what, if we don't know where those edges are, then we always, everybody looks up, and what's funny is everybody looks up until we end up at the top. And so then things are quite slow. Um, and often uninformed, because the you know the person that's running that facility doesn't know every nook and cranny of what's going on, nor can they. so so that was one of the most common ones. And then uh, just a sense that um, there wasn't a lot of uh, you know agency. People didn't feel like they could do anything differently, that they could suggest alternatives, et cetera. So we kind of needed to work on that. So what we do is we just invite people to start. Uh, doing small, safe to try local experiments to see if it helps. So, right. we minimum get one Minimum viable
2: product. Yeah, exactly.
3: Yeah, it's, M- it's MVP for sure. Right. Um, and I often refer to it as minimum viable policy. So, Hello. what's the least amount of policy and structure we can have that protects us from chaos but doesn't limit and inhibit our creativity yeah. and our judgment? Um, so, yes, yeah, so you have teams, you know, there were 500 people there, there would be a dozen or more teams trying things and we had a high transparency about what we're trying and what's happening so everybody's hearing at town halls at you know it, through channels through things like slack or or social media what is happening and how it's going and then as things worked for teams then others were invited to share in that and spread that so we would actually have an organic spreading of practice so maybe one team figures out how to make a decision differently or how to have a meeting that they really get a lot of value out of or what have you and then they would say well here if another team's curious about that we'll codify it for them and we'll share it not mandated but offered
2: okay so it's almost like virality of popular initiatives spread themselves
3: yeah because in theory I mean one of the there's some first principles stuff that goes on here. So if all the uh, ways of working come from the top and are mandated and are compliance based, then when things change, the only person that can fix the system is the top. And so you get into this problem of time gap and of context awareness and all the things that are broken in a big complex system. But if we teach teams to update their way of working themselves and they build that muscle of what are my tensions, what are my options, what can I experiment, how does it feel now, and they learn how to do that really well then in theory there's no future stressor that they're not resilient to because mm. the world will turn again we'll get the meeting rhythm just right or the communication just right or the tools just right and then the world's going to turn and it's going to be different and something's going to need to shift so, so we want
2: that capacity so let's stage an imaginary intervention yeah so like, there's a whole section that I was going <laughs> through on meetings yeah and meetings are the curse of modern work they are. they're, they're like you know if you were going to if you were going to put all the ills of work down on one thing, I think you'd probably land on meetings. Because they're the microcosm of the culture as a whole. Right, so let's go through a specific. You go into an organization, they say to you, people in interviews or in group sessions, they say, are spending too much time on meetings. Take me through the stages of what you would do yeah. and how you would yeah. help them reach so a sort what, of
3: resolution. So one example, we worked with a leadership team that had 45 hours a week of meetings on average. Uh, get out of here i'm not kidding at all this is a you know massive 100 million dollar you know kind of company so uh that's uh, that's literally though in meetings
2: from nine till six every day no lunch break
3: correct they ate in meetings i watched it okay um and and when you have that much going on the incremental approach of let's add another meeting or let's make one better didn't feel like the right play so the discussion we had was what if we stopped for two weeks and just saw what we missed So uh, we call it start by stopping sometimes. So instead of replacing the bad travel policy with a better one, what if you just get rid of it and see what emerges in the culture? Okay. So this was let's get rid of the meetings and see what we miss. So what we missed was, at first, was we need a way to coordinate week to week on what we're doing. So we just need a way to, like, unblock the work, get a sense of what we're doing in this sprint, you know, this, this week or two weeks of work. Um, and that is, that's the most urgent need. So we started with that. So we rebuilt that. And one of our rules is that me- when we reintroduce meetings, every meeting has a facilitator. Every meeting has a scribe. It's elected from the group just to kind of give the meeting structure, And the structure might be very almost no structure, but there has to be an intent, like we're in this meeting to coordinate or we're in this meeting to make decisions or we're in this meeting to, you know, brainstorm or whatever it is. And then there should be a structure that supports that. So the facilitator can hold us to that structure and kind of keep us from victimizing ourselves. So we get those two, two roles in place and then we introduce this, uh, this approach to that meeting. And because we're students of this stuff and we look at all these hundreds of companies around the world, when someone says, we need a weekly meeting to coordinate the work, we're like, cool, well, here's three versions of that meeting that we see working really well in different pockets around around the world, and which of these seems like it's going to be the right starting place for you, or do you have your own idea? So the client says, oh, you know, let's do that one. That, that format looks good. Um, and so we introduce the format. Run that meeting for a week or two, and at the end of every meeting, we always ask you know two questions: What did you notice, and what can we do better? So, what did you notice is what happened in the room? What was the dynamic? Did somebody talk too much or not enough? Was there an energy shift? What do we did we feel plugged in, or were we all on our devices? There's no um, reaction other than just to say what what happened. Like, are we present in our own way of working? And then the second piece is what can we do better? So. Did this serve us or not? And we just build that muscle from the get-go then so that from now on, when we finish a meeting, we're never going longer than a week without assessing as a group what happened here.
2: But tell me now, if you went back to that company now, the 45 hours a week, yeah. how many hours of, me- of we- meetings do they have a week now?
3: So when we finished rebuilding, I think they were in the like 12 to 16 okay, range. Okay, so
2: they're still at a normal range. Yeah. Still it's, it's
3: not like they've gone without. They've since creeped up to, I think, north of 20.
2: Have they? Yeah. Okay, at least you're honest about that. It's like yeah. the patient often has some recidivism, right? Oh yeah. I mean, the reality
3: is that this takes effort and it takes discipline, and it is—it's um, a practice. You know, even when you talk to the companies in the book that are considered way out ahead, when you actually sit down with them, they'll tell you we're still learning, we're still figuring this out. As we scale, things are changing. Like there, it is—it is a breathing in and out yeah. that's always going on. The difference is most companies stop asking those questions and stop those experiments. And the ones that keep learning are the ones that that's always an open. That's the second job that everybody holds, right.
2: right? Well, as in going to meetings. No, reinventing the way we work. Right. Okay. Right? okay so okay, I'm
3: okay. I'm the VP of this, and I'm the uh, VP okay. of making sure that our way of working is serving us. You know, what are,
2: th- what are the companies that either once you staged an intervention or before you went in, I saw you talked about Gore-Tex. Mm. But what are the companies that you think we can most learn from? I mean the ones i 'm most excited about
3: are I mean w l Gore is a very old one in the space that 's quite watched and, and studied and I think underreported
2: Give us like uh, the the study notes on on w Gore
3: yeah, so W l Gore is cool because the one of the concepts they use internally there is called the waterline, and the idea with the waterline was we want to empower more decision making but we want to be responsible about it because they make things like heart valves and I mean stuff that is real critical. Uh so so what they do is um they say a water line on a boat is if you get a hole below the water line the boat sinks. If you get a hole above the water line, you can just patch it when you get back to shore. So that language becomes the guide for when you're about to make a decision, we trust you. If you think the decision's above the waterline, go for it. And you're gonna be the judge of that. So do you think it's recoverable? Is it, you know, as Bezos talks about, is it reversible or irreversible? Is it gonna, you know, is it gonna really harm us as a team or as a company or is it Survivable. So if it's above the waterline, they say go for it. You know, use your, learn, use your judgment, do what you need to do. If you think it's below the waterline, seek advice from the people that have been there before, from the people that were gonna be affected by your decision, perhaps, and really hear that advice. And then if you wanna keep going or do it the way you're gonna do it, go ahead. But there will be, you know, there's consequences. There's reputational consequences, but et the, cetera. The,
2: the one thing you've not mentioned, W.L. Gore, is it? Yeah. yeah. The one thing, the, there's no bosses and there's no reports at W.L. Gore, right? That's so right. Like, so you, you're basically a lone agent and you're, you're given the autonomy to make things done. But someone I know who went to work there yeah. said, It's actually effing exhausting. He said, you know, you're trying to build tribes. And when you're building tribes about getting Gore-Tex products into Nike items, there's plenty of people who want to help. When you're trying to get (laughs) Gore-Tex products into something far more mundane, uh, it's really difficult to build these. And he said, it takes you a while to acclimatize. And it's just a sort of it's exhausting experience yeah. i think from the uninitiated
3: it's a reputational economy and so the bill called it a a lattice organization so that it's quite networked but what that means is when you're trading positional power which has its own limitations for reputational power then yeah when you're brand new in the system you're kind of swimming and mm. you're you're figuring out how to make those connections and how to motivate things and how to get things you know going um, but if you've been there for a while and you have quite a bit of reputation, it's it's quite a bit easier. And yeah, and so, I think
2: the person I was chatting to was in the UK. Yeah, so you know, so you distance from the, the right and, as well.
3: Yeah, so I, I mean, I think uh, one of the things I'm very upfront about is every way of working has trade offs. So you have to decide what are the trade offs you want to optimize for. Mm. You know, what's the outcome that you're really looking to achieve? And in that case, in the case, of a lot of the businesses that we follow here, they're very interested in prioritizing adaptivity. They work in categories where speed and, and change and that sort of thing is important, and innovation, and they're also very interested in prioritizing the human experience, the, you know, the human centricity. And that doesn't mean that it's easy. You know? For us to do our greatest work doesn't always feel like a pleasure cruise. Um, sometimes it can, can ask a lot of us. And mm. I think one of the metaphors I use in the book is the difference between a lighted intersection that's all about compliance and control, telling you when to go and when to stop, and a roundabout, which asks you to kind of use your judgment. And you know, many people report that the roundabout feels worse to them because they feel like they're on you know, They have to be really present in the system, they have to watch everybody else, they're coordinating socially. So it's harder to be in a roundabout than it is at a light where you can check your phone. But on almost every metric that we're aware of, the roundabout is superior, right? It's higher throughput, it's safer, it's you know, cheaper to build and maintain, it's better when the power goes out. But it asks more of us. So I think there's a question of like the ask, the feeling of fulfillment and reward that comes on the other end, and also you know little aspects of personality type and fit and all those sorts of things.
2: More with Aaron after this. Today's episode is brought to you in association with the Perkbox Workplace Culture Awards, a nationwide competition celebrating the businesses that go over and above to make their people happy. As long as your business believes in putting people first, you could be in with a chance of winning a fabulous prize. Courtesy of Perkbox. Go to awards.perkbox.com to nominate your company or another company you love. Nominations will close on the 31st of October. Winners chosen throughout November. Happy nominating.
0: Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new custom spray five-in-one gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, Edges and curves, without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom spray five and one. Only from Rustolium. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus,
1: You have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
2: Now back to the chat with Aaron Dignan. When you've gone in and helped a company, it sounds like as much as anything, you're guiding them to help themselves. Totally. to to Helping them to, to discover what works for them. Um, what are the things that you've been most inspired by?
3: I think it's what's very inspiring is that um, four or five years ago when I would have this conversation with leaders, there was a lot more resistance to the necessity, the the possibility, the the reality that the way we've been working might not be the answer. And I think what's very inspiring is now almost no matter where I go and no matter what level I talk to, there's a sort of tacit acceptance that like, yeah. Bureaucracy and our inability to adapt has has really caused some issues for us politically, environmentally, socially. Um, there's an openness to the idea that we, there's got to be a better way, mm. right? And so now I, I think that is quite you know is quite enlivening. And when we get into teams and we see them with all their fatigue around change because it's been done to them for so long. It's the PowerPoint over the weekend that the executive puts out and says, new organization, everything's going to be better now. But of course, we all know that that's often not the case. Um, There's a cool thing that happens when the first team in a system who has been in that environment gets the opportunity to change some small thing about the way they work, see the result two weeks later, feel it, and then say what's next. And something flips in people where they're like, holy shit, we just changed something that made our lives better, and now we're being asked to do the next thing, and like everything's possible, you know, even though it seems yeah. like a silly little change. Just the idea that like it was their change, yeah. and it happened, and, and now what's next? And
2: how radical do you think people are? So Cal Newport talks about yeah. um, maybe going to a world without email. Mm-hmm. And in fact, I chatted to someone last week yeah. at a firm that they don't have email, right. and a uh, technology firm. And and I said, "Oh right, it must be Slack." And the person said, "We don't use Slack." <laughs> and I was like, "Right, now uh, I'm interested." Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and you know, yeah, and I was I was fascinated. I wanted them to talk to me, but they wouldn't for because they saw it as their secret sauce. <laughs> but. Um, Have you seen any companies who are doing things as radical as that? Yeah,
3: I mean, certainly, uh, you know, there are some companies in the book that almost take a no meetings stance. There are others that do them well, like, you know, Pixar really believes in their meetings because they're very bespoke and fit to purpose. You know, Basecamp is sort of like, we want to avoid as many meetings as possible. If If we could have none, that would be fine with us. So you see these different takes on, like, do it well versus don't do it. We don't use email internally, so we have kind of a hybrid approach at the ready. Where we say no email internally. Uh, If you have to use it with external partners, that's the way of the world. Slack, right? You must be using Slack. Yeah, we're we're big believers in Slack. It's not perfect, but the the goal in a lot of our worlds is to have uh, really good information symmetry and really clear pull methods of getting what you need. So So knowing to go to the right channel
2: pick what they mean. So. Information symmetry means? Everybody has the
3: same information. Got it. And pull? And pull versus push. So push is, oh, I have the information because I got it in an email from the boss, or I have the information because somebody you know shoved it in my drive or what have you pull is when I need something, there's a way for me to know where to go okay. and to find it. So if I want to know what your team is doing next week, I can open Trello, go to your board, and see what your work in progress is. And I can see the status of anything. Right. Because there's no more politics and secrecy. And vice versa, you can see what I'm up to. Um, that That is that's sort of that pull method rather than the push method of like, you have to come do a review with me every week so I can hear your work status. You know, which is really more of a theater. It's a, yeah. it's the theater of of my control. Over so you're not everything.
2: really seeing like the results-only work environment, style, complete anarchistic autonomy. <laughs> you're not really seeing a lot of that. I think
3: I think the the polar take on this is that our choices are basically chaos or bureaucracy. And I find that in reality, when you really spend time with the companies doing this well, that seem to have a very human-centric way of working that's also very resilient. <laughs> It's a nice, co- it's a nice in between. You know, they yeah. found the things where it's that minimum viable policy. They found the places where structure is helpful. They have it. It's an agreed upon structure, so it's consented to. It's it's governable and it's updatable. Um, and then where where judgment is enough, where the two rules inside the roundabout of go with the flow of traffic and give the right away to the people in the circle, when that's enough, then that's enough. Do you think and teams
2: and companies are too big.
3: Yes. I think two things are true. So, one, generally speaking, I think companies will get smaller in the future just by virtue of the the power that we're going to be afforded with AI and robotics and other technologies. And the second uh, thing is that there's a difference between a big functionalized organization and a big federalized organization. Right. Hello. What's this? And so, if you think about most traditional large organizations, as they grow, they notice that they have lots of little microcosms of sales organizations and legal organizations and P&Ls. And in an effort to create efficiency and scale and control, they often consolidate that into single functions. So you have global HR, global sales, global finance, global marketing. And what happens there is you get to maybe get rid of a little bit of the fat, and then you get one leader who's that big leader over it, and they can control. And then we have all this consistency. Our sales is so consistent. The problem, of course, is that this creates these silos that are self-reinforcing, that are self-scaling, that are self-policing, and these you know, bulkhead walls between the functions so that if we ever want to make something that the user actually needs, we have to coordinate so much. And what you find in the organizations that we studied for the book is that they flipped that on its head and said, we can be as big as we want, but we want the unit of work to be small enough that it's manageable. So usually less than 150 people, sometimes way less. So Burtzorg, for example, is 14,000 people made up of 10 to 12 person nursing community squads. It's the whole company. It's just squad, 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 yeah, squad, yeah, squad.
2: It's the Dutch nursing Exactly,
3: members. and so they, um, what's nice about that is the scale becomes a non-issue right? There is scale, but really the the unit of work that's happening is much more manageable. Same thing for Gore. I mean, Gore used to do a new building when they reached 150 people. So they would say, once we get to 150, we're going to open another building on the campus because we don't want more people than that in a space. So let's
2: look at what that would look like. So that means, back to your original example, yeah. the HR actually might have consistent policies, but there's not global head of HR. Is that what
3: you're saying? Yeah. What I'm saying is that, you know, two things are true. One, A lot of what happens in a centralized HR organization could be happening at the edge. So It's pushing some responsibility back to the teams and saying, you know what? You're best suited to do your own recruiting. You're best suited to do your own hiring. You're best suited to do your own onboarding. That's your job as a team. When it comes to things that should be central, data, helping us know what fair pay looks like in a market, legal regulation, et cetera, that's a service. But it can be a much smaller service, especially in this technology future. Yeah. So now we have a fifty-person HR organization instead of five hundred, and they're producing product for their users, which are these teams at the edge. So it's just a very—it's a marketplace relationship rather yeah. than a kind it, of centralized, centrally driven it, one.
2: It really reminds me of Newcore. Yes, yeah. Newcore are like the um, the most profitable steel manufacturer yes, in the U.S. Yes, 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 yes. But they. Every function is done remotely at each plant, so they've got marketing at the at that plant or HR at that plant and many and factories that's right and and you know they believe that the, all the economies of scale are somewhat illusory. Correct. Because the economies of scale of having a global team is lost by that global team needing need to travel around the world, have global All the bottlenecks and, and limits. It's, and right, more, it's sort of yeah. like this illusion. It's a bit like open plan offices. Open plan offices are a complete illusion yeah, yeah. that they look better. Oh, we're so collaborative. Paper. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, with, it really. just leads to a spawning of emails. Yeah,
3: and I think that's right, is that we because we know how to measure something like how many lawyers we have, mm. and we don't know how to measure something like how quickly and effectively our legal operation is actually pushing things through, it's much easier to just be like, oh, well, if we put them all together, we can have 50 instead of 100, and wouldn't that be so efficient? Mm. But like you're saying, the efficiency really only matters when we look at the outcome. So at the, if the end of the day is that we're slower and we're more um, you know, inhibited, then I'm thrilled that we're paying less for legal, but it doesn't matter. I mean, we'll essentially be efficient to the point of our own demise.
2: I think the reason why I didn't finish the book and that I've been busy. <laughs> I'm not going to apologise, uh, but um, but uh, because it feels so practical that I felt li- I felt like it was like a great thing for someone preparing for an offsite. Right. And we're about let's tackle this theme. Yeah. You jump right And go immediately in. to the information chapter. Right. Right. And right. you say, okay, what we're going to tackle on this offsite is let's how get we use that. information. Yeah. We're going to use this to work through. Is that sort of the intention, or is it? So,
3: I mean, we we use the 12 sections in the book as as foils for asking yourself the question, right? Just to say, like, this is where it's most, where work is most in flux. So if you're wondering kind of where to be looking, these are places to look. I think sometimes it's too myopic to just look at one thing. Yeah. But it's okay to look at one thing and say, all right, this is where where we want to focus. And just to be aware of what else does that connect to. So information is a good example where often someone listens to a podcast like this and they're like, damn, I'm so excited about empowerment. I'm going to go empower my team on Monday. They forget that they have really bad information symmetry. Mm. So they have bad information flow. People don't have the information that the boss has. And then people make bad decisions with their new empowerment, their new autonomy. And then they say, oh, empowerment doesn't work. It's like no, it works just fine, but it's connected to information. So you have to make sure that that flow is high. The people know how we're doing, the finances, the market, what other teams are up to. Then, when they're making these empowered decisions, they're prepared. So we do it a little bit to sort of trace the lines there and say, what is this? What might inhibit this? What might enable mm-hmm. this? Um, and that's why you know we often start. We we do this looping with the cards where we say. It's, it is interesting what part of the OS we're playing in, but what's more interesting is just very granularly, what's the tension, what's the practice we're considering, how do we test it quickly in a way that's safe to try. Yeah, yeah. And, and if it happens to be an information, great. Yeah. Um, I think sometimes people want to do it in some blanket move where they're like, now our information game is perfect. That's not really how it works. It's a little bit more like gardening. You're going to trim this, adjust that, plant something new over there, you know, fertilize. Like you're going to be interacting with it in, on an ongoing basis. So you want to be able to understand it systemically but operate locally. Show me the cards. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You got to check these out. So I just want to see your reaction to these. So we'll start with tension. So there's 78. I tried yeah, these to make are big
2: it cards as well. These yeah. are like TV magician.
3: Yeah, cards. exactly right. Yeah, this is uh, this is that. So there's 78 of these things, and these are the, the 78 most common bureaucratic tensions that we've seen in organizations across okay. 15 countries. So it's like
2: a deck of cards. Yeah. with Lack of trust is the top number one. one. It isn't always clear who has the authority to make decisions. And so what you would invite people to go through each of these as a stimulus.
3: Yeah, and we would basically say, talk about this as a team and pick the five that are most alive for you right now. So it sort of gives us a a foil to say, what's really going on here? What do we agree? Sometimes I'll have a leadership team break into two groups, two decks, come to the top five, and then what's hilarious is they're often not the same.
2: Too much consensus. Mm. People have to ask permission to take action. Opinions matter more than data. Okay. <laughs> Tell me what happens. There's a tension because people reach different conclusions.
3: Yeah. So, I mean, what happens is a few things. A, sometimes it's nice to have the words. So often we're in cultures where maybe if I'm afraid if I say it and the boss hears me say it, there'll be repercussions. So the card says it for you. Like everyone has to look at the card that says diversity is a problem here and decide, is that true or not true? And we sort of watch the room, and if we notice too fast a move, sometimes a boss will be like, our meetings are theater, nah. And it'll be like, wait a second, give that, let that breathe for a second. Does anyone else see this and just try to invite that bravery. So we get through there, we get we get the cards. If we get multiple teams doing it and they have different takes, then we can have the discussion that I brought up earlier, which is there's no such thing as one system here. Yeah. So you're both right. So these are all happening for you, so now what are we gonna do about it? Instead of trying to agree on which one is the tension, which is nonsense, let's address the fact that we oh, have interesting. two different cultures. And realities. culture
2: is the way things get done around here. Yeah. This is trying to give name to yeah. aspects, these mm-hmm. notes of culture.
3: Yeah, and the pockets of it that exists yeah. so the finance guy is like our problem is no time for actual work and the product guy is like nah, it's meetings both are right so now right. what right so so we pick we get those narrowed down and then we bring out this practices deck and this is really important because i find that the longer you've been working in traditional or somewhat traditional systems the harder it is to think of alternatives yeah. because you've been modeling what you've seen and you, you know there's no time to think so people say oh uh you know alternatives i don't know what my alternatives are so we made this by going and talking to all these firms these were the practices that uh, progressive, you know, firms that were sort of prioritizing okay. different things brought to the table. Some of them are quite obvious, and some of them are quite weird. Um, but now we say, take the five tensions you picked and match them with practices you think will move us forward, and importantly, practices that you yourselves as leaders are willing to try.
2: Right. Okay. Because
3: otherwise, what's the point?
2: Mm. So some of these are craft a clear and compelling purpose for the organization. Okay. Uh, ask teams to share their essential intent for the next four to 24 months. Clarify the metrics that matter and use them to steer. Recognize and celebrate noble failure. Okay, interesting. (laughs) And so these are just things that you've observed in high-performing teams.
3: Yeah, yeah. I mean, everything from, you know, really uh, simple stuff like purpose to really challenging stuff around decision-making, around budgeting, around, I mean, you know, some of it's quite, some of them are quite exotic, some are very simple. Um, But the idea is if you see a fit, if you see a connection between a problem that you have and a possible solution, now you have the makings of an experiment. So we say, you know, one of those said uh, work in sprints to sort of break the work down and make it more manageable. And maybe your thing was we just get lost in these never-ending projects. So you say, we get lost in never-ending projects, we're going to work in sprints. And we say, okay, great. Which team is willing to work in one-week sprints where we decide on Monday and ship on Friday publicly to everyone, wherever we're at, work in progress, uh, for the next eight weeks. Okay. And then at the end of that, how would we know if it worked? So what would be the learning metrics? How, you know, and, and what's funny is when I work with product people, they're often using a lot of these test and learn lean startup techniques on the product. They're just not using it on the culture. so it's like redirecting that energy to say the way you're refining that product with the customer you're the customer of the culture so sort of turn that lens inward
2: it's interesting I was chatting to Seth Godin and I sort of blurbed your book but Seth Godin said that quite often with culture it's about building a little team that's doing things in a different way and waiting for people to notice
3: yeah because I want what she's having yeah that's right yeah I think that's so true and what we look for so when we plant these experimental you know projects and we have teams doing this it's never everybody it's always a pocket sometimes quite spread out but what i watch for is i watch for organic practice spread so if one team decides as an experiment they're going to start using a kanban board and trello or what have you and that's their that's their thing and i walk past a conference room and i see another team using it i'll pop my head in where'd you get that what are you doing with it oh well we heard from the team over in product that they were having a lot of luck moving things forward and they have all this visibility and they like this tool whatever the heck it is And we say, that's it, that's actual change, because now it's spreading organically, which means two things are true. A, we know it's actually serving us, because we're choosing to adopt it. And B, we know we've started to create enough safety in our way of working that things can spread without permission. Because really the problem is, many people know better ways, but they're not allowed. And so it's like, wow, the boldness to just change the way we hold this meeting because we want to using something that another team discovered is really serving them well. That's the start of something quite interesting. Yeah, yeah.
2: How do you think this sort of the world of work and debate on these things is going to evolve?
3: Yeah, well, I mean, I think we're I think we're at a crossroads right now culturally um, in the midst of, you know, Trumpism and Brexit and everything else where we're really trying to decide, do we double down on the old way? Do we ret- retreat into, you know, our, our tribes and our, and our sort of traditions? Or do we really reinvent the, the way we solve these problems? Do we really step forward? And I don't know yet which is going to happen. I don't really count myself a, a huge optimist or pessimist. I count myself curious. But what I think is true is that the building blocks are there. The, the, the curiosity, the interest, and then also the infrastructure. I mean, one of the big problems is that the public markets have become metastasized and all they care about is volatility and short-term growth and never-ending growth. But then you have Eric Reese's long-term stock exchange coming online, and it's all about you have more votes the longer you hold a stock. So that's quite an interesting counterpoint. You have public benefit corporations and certified B Corps and cooperatives really coming up again in the States and, and, and over here as well. Um, so there are new forms of organization that protect the purpose and the meaning a little bit more. And then, frankly, you just have these leaders that are like you know either fed up and ready to flip the table over or starting something new and are like, yeah, I'd really like to, from the ground up, get this right and put the pieces in place so I think uh, the next five to ten years are going to be one of quite binary polarities you're going to have companies that are going way further into this change and then you'll have others that are really um, doubling down and yeah, and I, I don't I don't yet know exactly what to expect but I'm what I'm trying to do is encourage the bravery that's required to you know to take the leap
2: Thank you. That's been a fun discussion. Yeah, that. Thank you very much.
3: That's my pleasure, totally.
2: Aaron's book, Brave New Work, is out now. I've given a link to it in the show notes. I've also posted his socials there, so you can, you can follow him. Thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate all the lovely feedback about the most recent episodes, the episode with Pippa, some of the episodes before that. In fact, a lot of people have contacted me about that Marcus Buckingham episode which was the one, The Nine Lies About Work. Now, I'll tell you, I really enjoyed that episode. I really enjoyed the discussion. I really enjoyed the take. A lot of people have taken exception to the thing that I pointed out about Chick-fil-A's culture and about Marcus working for Facebook. And I found myself um, going down a wormhole of, of reading various things on the internet. And one of them was I read The Glass Door, um, feedback do you, do you ever read Glassdoor it's sort of like the link the, the review site the Amazon reviews of working at different companies I read the Glassdoor reviews for what it's like to work at the Marcus Buckingham company wow wow, wee, wow. I would not be writing a workplace culture book if that was the review of my work my goodness I really appreciate you listening thanks so much Let's speak to you next time